But and now uh, Jackson would like to announce that he is retiring from his career <laughs> pursuits and is going to become a three-card Monty player on the streets of his town. Yep. Hello, and welcome to another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. And today we are talking about Top Dog Underdog. This is a play by Susan Laurie Parks. I consider myself kind of a title snob. One of the things that I really like to do (laughs) is say how much I don't like plays that have terrible titles. And this (laughs) title is Awesome. One of my favorite titles in all of theaterdom, Top Dog Underdog. This play premiered off-Broadway. This play premiered – it was at the Public Theater and it actually starred Don Cheadle and Jeffrey Wright, um, both of whom have kind of come into popular movies. Don Cheadle obviously was – is in the Marvel movies as War Machine and Jeffrey Wright was in The Hunger Games in the second movie as one of the kind of crazy inventor characters um, from that district. I don't don't remember a ton about The Hunger Games but (laughs) I remember that he was in that movie. He's um, he's also in uh, Westworld as he's the Bernard, one of the main, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not watching Westworld, but I, that, yeah. yes, I did see that on a scene. Yeah. Um, so the play that it moved on to Broadway and played there for a while, uh, was nominated for a couple Tonys, but for our purposes, its big thing is that in 2002, it won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. So we are, as we continue down this path of great scripts in American and non-American liter- dramatic literature, we uh, love to pick scripts from the Pulitzer Prize list. So we're excited to talk about this one today. Yes, indeed. And just kind of a, as a way of giving you a short synopsis at the beginning, like we try to do, this play focuses on the two main characters, which, is, which are Lincoln and Booth. They are, I'm sure we'll get into some of the foreshadowing of that, but they're, they are, these are two brothers who live in the same apartment with each other, who grew up together, took care of each other as they grew up, and are in this moment in time living together again. Um, there are some other characters mentioned. Uh, Grace is mentioned, who is Booth's current love interest, and then Cookie, which is Lincoln's past uh, love interest, actually his ex-wife. So uh, those two characters will come up as well. And then there's their mother and father, who I believe they refer to as Ma and Pa. Um, The the, the action of the play is kind of centered around home life of these two, um, as opposed to... You know, not necessarily. We're not necessarily picking things up in the middle of conflict. There is conflict, and we'll kind of bring those to light. But a lot of this, a lot of the scenes, are kind of like what happens when they come home for the day. Um, there, the kind of big key conflict that we hit on pretty quickly is Lincoln's job is in in peril, or he is he might lose his job soon. And we'll get into what exactly his job is. But uh, the the conflict that he is dealing with is the stress and the worry about losing his job at what is uh, an arcade where he plays Lincoln appropriately, as in the president. Um, and yeah, so we kind of pick up the action right there in this, you know, they're, they're cruising along. And the other kind of good thing to note about the setting, at least, there's this is no particular setting and no particular time. 
um, as as per the directions in the script. But it is Booth's apartment. It, at least it's his name on the lease. So uh, Lincoln has moved in with Booth at some time in the past, and they are living together. But that is the power dynamic of it is it is not necessarily Lincoln's place. I wanted to ask kind of right away, as long as we're we're right there. What do you? How long ago do you think Lincoln moved in? Is this a regular kind of a newer? Well, the clues that we get are that Booth talks about how this was meant to be a temporary arrangement, as in it doesn't seem to be temporary any longer. He brings it up a few times that this was just intended to be a temporary thing, oftentimes as he's threatening to throw him out. So there's that clue that it's it's definitely gone on longer than a, quote, temporary arrangement. The other clue is that we know that Lincoln moved in when his wife Cookie threw him out when they got their divorce. So And Lincoln is in a place where he's beginning, I think, to get over that divorce still maybe in some of the back end of grief and loss, but at a point where he can look forward to what, you know, maybe the rest of his life without Cookie is going to look like. So there's been some time since the end of that relationship as well. It'd be very hard for me to put a specific year on it um, unless, you know, you you really dug in. But he's been living there for a while. I I don't get the feeling that he has recently moved in. Yeah, I think I'd agree. The other other kind of only the, the only other thing that kind of dates their relationship is he talks about discovering some of Booth's stuff that he has hiding. and and Right, like he says something like a week ago or a few weeks ago, I was yeah. looking for something and discovered all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But even that, that's not even, that's not really definitive, and I don't think that's really the focus, but... Right, but, be- but you're right that it does give us a clue that he didn't move in a couple of days ago. Right. At, yep. at the least, you definitely have that clue. And what's interesting is that it's Booth's apartment per se, <laughs> but Booth does not pay any slash, any, uh, just none. He pays yeah. none of the rent. I don't know what that slash was for. Ultimately, <laughs> all I'm really saying is that he pays none of the rent. Yeah. He does not have a job at all, really, as far as we can tell. Lincoln pays the entirety of the rent. So the power dynamic of whose apartment it is in, Lincoln seems to have ceded that battle for some reason. I right. guess because, like you said, maybe Booth's name is on the lease. But Lincoln's paying all of the rent and sleeps in a recliner while Booth doesn't work, practices cards at home all day, and Lincoln comes home <laughs> on Fridays and brings his paycheck, and they just give that over to the rent. <laughs> and he works in this job that is, that is, you know, not the greatest job. But it's a <laughs> yet weird he, job. It's, I mean, it's a weird it's job. Weird job. And I, I don't know that we said this in the intro, um, but Booth and Lincoln are both African-American men. And so this may surprise you if you haven't read the play because Jackson said that Lincoln was – his job was to be an Abraham Lincoln impersonator. And you did hear that right. So he is a, an African-American man. In fact, I think at some point he says, I'm a brother playing Abraham Lincoln every day. So yeah, he puts yep. on – on what the characters describe as white face. It's just white makeup um, mm-hmm. and a beard and a, and a top hat. But he's he is playing the president as an African-American man. And he he's not just playing the president like yeah. giving speeches or <laughs> for pictures. Jackson, what does he do in his impersonation of Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> yeah, Lincoln goes in and he sits in a, uh, a dark booth with uh, so, some scant lighting, one light bulb over him. He's sitting in a chair, and he enacts the moment when Booth kills Lincoln over and over, all day. People, are, He works in an arcade. People come in and pay for the, the fun 
of taking a cap gun and standing right behind the person playing Lincoln and shooting him in the back. Yeah. It, I mean, what in the world? <laughs> yeah. What it's arcade is And this? you know what's even weirder about it? It's not just that Susan Laurie Parks like thought of this idea for a character who does this job. <laughs> it's that it's the second play she's written about a character yeah. who does that job. In the little introduction for the script, she talks about how part of her idea for Top Dog Underdog was that she wrote another play. I think it might be called The American Play or something, yeah, where yeah. she writes about a character who does the same thing, plays Lincoln <laughs> so that people can shoot Lincoln dead, pretending to be John Wilkes Booth. Right. And that's To write one character that does that is crazy. <laughs> she's written two plays with a character who does that job. I mean, that is nuts. <laughs> yeah. So it's already kind of this weird job that he's maintaining the household with, if you will. It's not even his. He pays for all of the rent, all of the food. There is no money coming in from Booth. Um, but there is some stakes in that, right? We we find out a, a huge player throughout this this uh, play, and I'm sure we'll talk about it from different facets quite a lot, is the game Three Card Monty, which is a it's a scam. Uh, many of you have seen it. It's a a card game where you get people to guess where. In this play, I think they use uh, low cards quite a bit. Um, no, they do. Um, yeah, they do the two of hearts or two the of two hearts of spades. Or two and, of the, spades. and the brothers have a difference in which they prefer, which is maybe minor. Maybe major. It's interesting that you called it a scam, Jackson, because when I have seen Three Card Monty in cities and read about it and heard about it, I agree it's always been described as the scam that you can't win. Do you think that the brothers play it as a scam? Oh, this is a huge question, but yeah, I absolutely do. So do you think that they're cheating? I mean, it seems to me like they think of it as a game of skill. Like how how they talk about all all the time. Like how fast can I be? Can I be fast enough to beat the eyes of the watchers? Whereas I, when I think about three card money, I think about the person playing cheating and like switching cards, mm -hmm. and so none of the cards are the right card and stuff like that. I think Booth talks about it like fast enough. Like I I think this is I think this is the core of the play. Booth talks about three card Monty as. Some, as being fast enough, as being good enough. He thinks he's the best. But uh, Lincoln talks about it as there's so much more going on that you don't know. And they get into a little bit about it. They get into the the, the spotters and the different people the, the, uh, who, who are around the card game, the right. people who are... The way that it is a scam, for the brothers at least, is that they talk about having a crew. And one of the crew is like the sideman who's pretending to be an audience, just a regular yep. customer or a regular mark. And the sideman is trying to get the person who's really betting to pick the wrong car. Like, oh, I think it's that one, man. I think it's that one. Or they, they'll put a bunch of money down on a different card or whatever. So there's an element of like the scam of psychology of trying mm -hmm. to convince somebody. But I but, agree. For Booth, it doesn't seem like he talks about the scam of actually cheating at the cards, which at, at least in what I think about three card money is what I, I think people do on the streets is cheat in the actual cards. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's sort of what I've heard about. Yeah, I went on a YouTube deep dive and it's fun. Uh, we might link we might link to a page for uh, for three card money in this. But and now uh, Jackson would like to announce that he is retiring from his career <laughs> pursuits and is going to become a three card Monty player on the streets of his town. Yep, it's going to be real easy. Uh, <laughs> but no, the uh, 
but but there's 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 two key moments right when uh in a game of three card monty and it has to do with sleight of hand if if it's if it's the most honest version of of three card monty it's sleight of hand where you're you're reading expectations and such but many um uh, players have multiple cards of the same type so uh, by the end of it if some some of in some of them they'll reveal three of the right card at the very end if if some of these you know sh- showing the scam rather than uh uh, actually it, trying to take people's money uh some street performers but this is will actually on like youtube where you were watching like people trying to teach you the game exactly That's not, or street performers right people who actually play three card money do the reverse they have three of the wrong cards correct that they end up playing with so you never have a chance to win yeah exactly so yeah i think lincoln is playing with that mindset that he is he i think he's playing a long game and we'll maybe get into what that long game is but uh Waiting for the time so that he he lets he lets things happen. He lets Booth win at times, or perception of winning happen, so that the the scam or the turn uh, can can come for him to win at the moment that the dealer wants to win. Right. Well, we're pretty late in the play at that point because yeah, we're talking about when Lincoln actually plays three card money. It's important to note that for the first half of the play, Lincoln is adamant that he is not going to get back into it. What we know yeah. is that Lincoln used to make his living being a hustler playing three card money in the streets and that what ended up happening was a friend of his got shot. He doesn't know how or why. The audience doesn't learn how or why. All we know is that he was, you know, he's had his crew. He was out on the street working, and a friend of his ended up getting shot. And that was his decision. That that incident was what caused him to retire from the game and try to get what he calls honest work. Now, the tension of maybe the plot of the play is that Lincoln's brother Booth, who he lives with, like we've said, is trying to teach himself three-card Monty to be a dealer. He wants to become the best at it, like Lincoln was. Lincoln was apparently a very, very good three-card Monty dealer and won tons of money every day, and etc. So Booth is teaching himself, teaching himself, and actually that's the first scene of the play, is him yeah. practicing his three-card Monty with nobody in the room, just practicing the, what they call the patter, which is the words that you say, and then the actual trick of the hands, playing with the cards. But... Mm-hmm. Booth tries to convince over the next several scenes Lincoln that he should join him, that they should go into business together, go back out onto the streets playing three-card money, and you know get, they're going to make their fortune and et cetera. That's his sort of line of attack is we could be rich again like you were when you played. We could work together like we don't get to work together now. You could quit that terrible job where you're just pretending to be a white man, et cetera, et cetera. And Lincoln says over and over again, no, i, I got to stay off the cards. I, I'm not playing anymore. That's not the life for me. It's dangerous. Dangerous, I don't want to do it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and that there's so much of the play, a good chunk of the words in the play are this this patter, this back and forth that the dealer is doing, long paragraphs of of uh I can't do it. So that that's probably it, indicative it, it, of like my... if you haven't read the play or if you haven't seen somebody do it in the streets, I've actually seen people do this game and similar games when I've been in cities, and it's fascinating just to listen to it. Um, But you might think of it as like an auction barker. It's that same kind of pattern. There's that sort of rhythmic, lots of words, only a few of the words actually mean anything, just trying to sort of mess with your psychology and lead you places with your words. Etc. Stuff like that. While we're talking about Patter Jackson, I'm interested in this. What what you make of this? So if you're looking at the actual script, again, this is the kind of thing that you maybe wouldn't be able to tell 
actually you should be able to tell, I suppose, if the performance were honest, but you wouldn't see if you saw a real a live performance. But if you've got the script in front of you, you'll notice that when Booth does the patter, his words all have hyphens between them. It yeah. is one hyphenated piece. Uh, and when Lincoln does the patter, his words have no hyphens. Um, and that's a huge difference in the way that they appear on the page. So what do you make of that? What is that decision about? What do the hyphens signify? What are they supposed to tell the actor? How should you play them differently as a reader? How are we supposed to interact with them differently? I'm just I'm very interested in the decision to go hyphens and non-hyphens rather than to have it be the same for the brothers. Yeah. the I think this play in general has some really fun uh formatting and and writing lingo that we can get into with this but to address that one just initially first i think she talks about booth being very stinted and it's not natural for him to be doing this so each word being separated by a hyphen i i read that as there's almost no flow to this right like Words are broken up oddly, and and maybe you don't do every hyphen as an actor as a solid break. You know, it's not like one word at a time that he's mm-hmm. saying this. But certainly, I, th- I think it's indicative and visually uh, indicative of his kind of uncomfortability, especially with the lingo of this. You get the sense that he imprinted on this kind of at an early age. We have some talking between the characters about that, that he used to be the, the weird younger brother. He's six years younger, f- five years younger. Five years, than- yeah. Than Lincoln, and so he would come and he would watch Lincoln doing three card Monty on the street, and he like you know got fascinated by it, and he would beg to be a part of the crew that was running it. So a lot of this is kind of hearsay that he's picked up from watching his brother do this, and he doesn't have a lot of practical experience. He's trying to repeat words that aren't really his own, that aren't ingrained inside of him, and we see that switch when Lincoln sits down with the cards for the first time. Yeah, and I think when I see the hyphened patter it to me like the word that comes to my mind is uncontrolled yeah it's like there's no sense of how it's supposed to feel instead it's just this sort of running it it feels like like a boulder like rolling down a hill with nothing to stop it whereas so maybe that's supposed to be the the signifier to the actor is that lincoln's patter is practiced and measured and does not does not require extra speed you know, maybe that's one of the things is that the playwright is trying to signify to the actor Booth should be trying to go faster than he actually can. And that and that looks and feels bad. He's bad at it, which is maybe we haven't said that clearly enough yet. Booth is bad at three-card Monty, right. at least the dealer side of it. And that's one of the tensions between the two brothers is that Lincoln was a very good player. Booth, we, we get the feeling, is not a very good dealer for three-card Monty. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we and we so we kind of see that straight away between the two of them within just the formatting of the words themselves. And and we like to draw attention to the formatting of plays because we are primarily doing this with a kind of a written word style of dealing with these plays. Some of these plays we've seen in person, but we're reading them all. And it's fun to kind of note the ways that different playwrights play with uh, different punctuation and spacing in plays. So as a way of that, what are some of the other ways that Susan Laurie Parks deals with uh Mm, formatting in this yeah, play. Yeah, she's got a very, very odd 
use of lots of things. Some things just kind of go unexplained. She has, uh, as is often common for playwrights, an author's note at the beginning of the script where she explains some of it, and she says that these are from kind of her own elements of style. She even says, I use really unconventional um, theater uh, signifiers for actors and directors, and she explains some of them. Uh, One that is not explained as far as I can tell, and that is... (laughs) Very odd is uh, um, it, it is the use of multiple parentheses. So there's several scenes where lines will be within like four parentheses. Uh, right. And, and they'll be right in a row. So it's not like it gets – it's not like there's an outer layer and then an inner layer inside its own set of parentheses and then another one. It's like four open parentheses in a row and then the line and then four closed parentheses in a row at the end of the line. And it's so it's uh, she does say at the beginning that parentheses indicate that lines are supposed to be sort of softly spoken. So potentially this is this is she puts four in there as like an indicator of this being like very, very quiet. You right. Know, you need to be very quiet. But then at that point, I mean, are you even speaking? <laughs> is she Does she signal volume levels by using the different numbers of parentheses? In which case, that's a very specific thing to indicate to actors the exact volume at which you should be speaking. I mean, that, that gets into like some sort of playwright mind control over the actors. <laughs> I want you to speak falsetto. Uh, matzo facetto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It almost feels like she's catering directly to the reader because that really gives me a really vivid picture of what's happening. And you can imagine this small apartment, two brothers, it's a single room as far as we can tell, I think, from the reading of the play. And you just kind of picture these two brothers and one of them, especially there's one scene, Booth spends some time um, tempting Lincoln into trying to get him into doing cards. And there's just the scene that you can absolutely picture a younger brother doing where Lincoln has said no and Booth kind of turns away and he kind of goes through the beats of the patter really softly. And that's one of the times that there's like seven parentheses. Yeah. (laughs) It looks visually crazy on the page. I originally downloaded this script as an ebook. And I was uh-huh. reading through, and sometimes ebooks that you download are not very good quality. Like someone's just thrown them together, and so I like returned it. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> there's seven parentheses. That's got to be a mistake." And like some of the words aren't spelled like conventionally in the actual yep. script. And I was like, "Somebody's misspelling words and putting an extra punctuation." <laughs> so I returned it and got a different one. And then I felt bad because right. <laughs> they were correct all along. It's just the yeah. playwright's sort of odd use of visual spacing. Another one is what she calls a spell. Uh, and a spell is an unspoken um, section. It, it contains – she doesn't give a ton of um, guidance on what should be in the spell. She actually says that a director and the actors will figure out what should go in there. She does give the indication that when when there is a spell, this should be sort of the, the, the characters at their most authentic or natural. This is the true version of the characters. And so what, what it looks like on the page is there'll be uh, line, 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 and then just the characters' names one after another with no lines attached. And so those are sort of unspoken sections. And, th- and they happen all throughout the play, and they're differently used. Like if it's a spell that just involves Lincoln, it'll just have Lincoln's name a couple of times or just Booth, just Booth's name a couple of times, or they'll be back and forth, Lincoln Booth, Lincoln Booth, Lincoln Booth, with no lines attached. And so what what goes in them is for the actors and the director to 
discover. It reminds me a little bit of in Sarah Rule's Clean House, which we've done. There are sections where Sarah Rule does a similar thing, and she says like the two sisters uh, go crazy or their their child their child for five minutes, and she doesn't give any description of what it should look like or how it should be. It seems to be similar breaks from the action or something like that. What did you make of those, Jackson? Yeah, yeah, I think that it is cert- there the gaps there leave leave the door open to directors which is nice to kind of fill things in but also I think I think what this space is is a really lived in space. Um it's it's kind of you know kind of run down, kind of dreary maybe, but I think there's plenty of moments in these for real life to happen. You know, you imagine Either th- these characters drink a lot, so you could fill that gap with drinking. It lets lets the actors determine more about their character by these moments. That 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 direction of they are their their most real in these moments lets you it leaves the door both wide open but infuriatingly ambiguous for an actor. Right. right. Uh, a, one production team might decide to make those these sort of hyper real moments where the characters basically just stare each other down or they just brush their teeth or they just, you know, just sort of sit silently together for a while. Another director might take it more in the direction of Sarah Rule and the characters jump up and beat their chests and act like gorillas for a while. You know, something sort of rep- hyper representative mm-hmm. of what's supposed to be going on authentically under the skin. I tend to be not as realistic as a director when I direct. So I would probably take those moments and maybe try to take them out of realism for a moment and do something that is indicative of the power structures that are being traded around at that moment. But a different director and a different team might do something totally different. And that's what's interesting about those moments. They're not lines, so they're not there and she, she they're not lines so there's no direction from the playwright about what to say there's no stage direction she just says there are these moments i've given you some indication of how long they should be by how many trade off of the characters names and i've given you some indication of who should be in them but what mm-hmm. happens in these moments is yours to decide and that is a fun creative element as a team i think to do and and the 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 kind of oddities of having multiple breaks with one character within so like if there's two lines of Lincoln but Booth is on stage what do you do with that like why because there's still silence in those lines right and so Booth, is Booth is still there in, how could you how could you indicate that this is a moment just for Lincoln yeah because there's no no word so it's not like you can direct it with sound with the voice but Booth is also there. So how do you highlight and make this moment just about what's going on with Lincoln? It's very interesting. I'd love to uh, work with some actors and imagine what some of those could be like sometime. I think that would be just awesome. Okay, so let's jump into the the foreshadowing, the use of these characters' names. So one is named Lincoln after Abe Lincoln. One is named Booth after John Wilkes Booth. Jackson, where did they get those names? <laughs> yeah, there's a scene. I think Lincoln says it. Uh, he says that. Did you ever ask Dad what where we got our names? And Booth says no, and he and he kind of laughs and said he laughed at me and said that it was his idea of a joke. Yeah. And <laughs> hey, can you imagine naming your kids Lincoln and Booth? Gosh. Well, so I mean, you're just you're setting up their lives to be kind of weird that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost almost foreshadowing, almost kind of Greek tragedy esque to have these characters 
named Wilkes and Booth, or it's Wilkes and Booth, uh, Lincoln and Booth to, you know, foreshadow how contentious their relationship will be. But to start with, it's not really that way. Like, as in contrast to some of the other brother plays we've covered, uh, for instance, uh, you had a kind of a fun thought earlier, yeah? About- yeah, well, I was talking to my wife as I was preparing for this podcast, and she was asking about the play we were doing, and I was describing Top Dog Underdog, and my thought was, you know, it's kind of like True West, Except yeah. that instead of about screenwriting, it's about playing cards. It's got a, some of the same elements and structures to it. Some of the same, like the crazier, less predictable brother is trying to convince the more stable, job-oriented, more predictable brother to do something he doesn't want to do. I mean, that mm-hmm. that happens for some of the play. There's some shift in who's got power through the play between the brothers a lot in some of in some similar ways. So, yeah, I, I actually think that comparing this play to True West is pretty fair to both scripts because they're both excellent scripts and Sam Shepard and Susan Laurie Parks obviously the top echelon of playwrights so it's a f- there's a f- there's some fun connections it would almost be fun to do these plays in rep somewhere <laughs> yeah uh, you know back and forth each night do a different show you could you could almost well True West is in a house so you couldn't do it with the same set but gosh you could almost get away with it yeah for a less than realistic set yeah totally but yeah, I think the 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 brother dynamic is interesting in this one because while they are um, uh, in conflict with each other for much of the play, I do feel like there is an undercurrent of shared love between both of them. These are two brothers who have grown up from, you know, uh, Booth was 11 when, oh, we haven't talked about this at all. Um, their parents left them. And, and interestingly, like, they left them one at a time. So it's yeah. not like they ran the the pair of them. Ran. In fact, I think Booth says, "Man, it's not like they just both decided to leave and go live on a tropical island someday. It was one at a time. It was over the course of our lives. Uh, the mother left first. She ran off with a lover and an affair." Because, as I understand the scene, it's not explicitly stated, but I, I think that because she's pregnant. She gets mm-hmm. pregnant, and so she runs off with the other guy. And the father then leaves later on for a sort of an unspecified reason. Uh, yeah. They both talk about how the, the mother and father have a – they talk about it as like their thing, which is like not quite an addiction, but like something that's pulling them towards a more chaotic, less stable, less loving, less uh, quote-unquote normal, whatever that means, life, away from that into a harder life. Maybe we – I mean I think the father being an alcoholic is probably a pretty safe guess with what we know about him. He they, he definitely has affairs with multiple people. They talk about that. So for some unspecified reason, maybe relating to some of that, he leaves then later on. Yep. So I, I and I believe he leaves when Booth is eleven and Lincoln is sixteen. Yes, that's the impression I got as well. Is that when they say their ages in reference to when the the final parent left yeah. when they were on their own, which was the dad leaving them. And these characters are in their thirties now. Um, Booth is early thirties and Lincoln is late thirties. So they've been twenty years kind of being each other's family. You don't get the impression that their parents have ever come back into their lives wherever they went. They've they've not re-entered. So th- I think there is still a very strong undercurrent of 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 love in these. Well, Certainly, there, there's Lincoln- a lot of family just built into 
sort of family love and dependence just built into who they are. They talk about how when they first were on their own, they had to scrap together, live in this crappy little place, work odd jobs. They were constantly avoiding child protective services. You know, so there's some of this just like shared history of of strife that has yeah. brought them together. Mm-hmm. But and then, but then at the same time, there is still this family tension, right? The younger brother Booth, I think he kind of thinks Lincoln is withholding his wisdom at three card Monty. He sees he he really sees the card game or the card heist or whatever you want to call it as a way to make uh, what he perceives as a decent living out of out of this scenario, and he thinks Lincoln has the key to that. Um, despite all of his big talk about how he's got it and he's got what it takes to do it, he's still looking for Lincoln. And I think there's some elements help. of like developmental psychology involved in that because Booth was 11 and Lincoln was 16 when they were first on their own. Booth grows up with Lincoln taking care of him as the older one who's probably able to work more of the jobs, able to provide a little bit more. So then what does Booth's life become? His life becomes living in Lincoln's shadow, quite literally. What does he want to do with his career? The thing that Lincoln used to be the best at. What does he do? He sits around all day at home waiting for Lincoln to come home with the paycheck so that they can pay their rent. His whole life is centered around Lincoln in a way that is not probably healthy for brothers, but it, it, it is sort of part of child development psychology because you, you sort of have the same interactions with your parents as you grow up, right? There's this stage in which you are learning from your guardians, your parents, whoever takes care of you as a kid, and you grow up sort of in that shadow. And then as an adult, you have to decide whether what they have taught you is going to be your life. Am I going to be like my parents were? And Booth decides that, yes, Lincoln is his idol. So what is he going to do? Try to be exactly like Lincoln. The best at three-card Monty. He's going to carry a gun like Lincoln used to do. Going to run a crew like Lincoln used to do. And what, what, what infuriates him most about Lincoln's job now isn't necessarily that it's just a different job than three-card Monty, but it infuriates him that he has to pretend to be somebody else. As if Booth realizes that Lincoln has has finally had that realization that who I who I was is not good enough. So in order to be successful in my life, I have to pretend to be someone else. But Booth, who wants to be that old version of Lincoln, it infuriates him that Lincoln doesn't want to be that anymore. Yeah, and so there's this this tension that you know Booth is constantly poking at that right and it's it's never like i don't think he ever specifically says that what do you, if am i forgetting a line that he like full out calls him out on it that that he pull, calls him out on like withholding his wisdom uh no calls him out on the hypocrisy of of uh that 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 he is kind of left behind being true to himself I don't know that he puts it in those words, but he does have a lot to say about the fact that Lincoln has to pretend to be someone else in his job. He's constantly harping on Lincoln for that. That you got to put on this costume, you gotta, especially that you got to put on a costume where you pretend to be a white person. Right. Put on gotta, like white makeup and stuff. And right, that the, the people at the job don't value you for you; they just value you as this pretend character. You're not real. Your job is just as much of a hustle as three card Monty is. Yeah, so he's he's constantly kind of picking at him and poking at him, and eventually that's what I think is so much of the 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 main conflict between these two brothers, and we see the relationship deteriorate. Is eventually 
he kind of succumbs to that pestering, right? Eventually, he Lincoln picks up the cards and starts well, and, going. And the back scene to in that. which he does it is very much like a scene of addiction, and and yeah. you, we know, of course, that gambling addiction is a very real thing, and there might be some elements of that in Lincoln. Although whether he's actually gambling, given that he's running the table, is an that interesting is weird, question. But he, yeah, he definitely has that same sort of physical relationship with the cards that an alcoholic would have with a bottle of alcohol when they're trying to be sober. There's this whole great scene in which Booth is asleep. He's not actually asleep, but Lincoln thinks he is. Uh, And so Lincoln is kind of, he tries not to mess with Booth's cards at first, and then he pretends to do the patter and the routine without touching the cards just to sort of uh, release his energy about it and then finally he picks up the cards and I think she even says in the stage directions like he, he can no longer physically keep himself from p- picking up the cards so he does it and then he goes through the whole routine and at the end he the stage directions indicate that he's realized that he's too deep that he's too far into it now and, and he, he backs off the cards real quick and he says God help me yeah. so it's very much a relationship of addiction with these cards I agree it's that scene that he he kind of picks them up. It is weird that what a what a weird thing that he's not actually the one gambling because perceivably he's he's got so much skill in this. It is rather the the kind of high the control that comes from um, the excitement of having that much money on on the table at stake. Uh, even though he's 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 probably the most in control in the situation, he feels the most in control when he's there, and maybe that's the high—the sense that he has complete control of this, and he is able to wield this power to affect change in his life and make money, a lot of money, which as we is find totally out. different than his job impersonating Abraham Lincoln. In fact, yeah. I believe Booth says about the job several times: "You don't have any control there at all. All you do is sit around." waiting for somebody to come in behind you in the tent, shoot you in the back with a with a cap gun, <laughs> yeah. pretend to die, somebody walks out and then you get up and do it again. You're you have bosses there who are considering laying you off. You have somebody who tells you when to show up for work. You have these responsibilities that aren't yours. You have no control at that job. And so by contrast, running the game of three-card Monty, running this crew, doing it, was a totally different level of control and of influence and of respect in these places that he went. Yeah, and and I absolutely agree. The antithesis of that is his job. They, they talk about a regular guy who, like, there's regulars who come in to shoot him in the back. Yeah, and whoa, that's so weird. <laughs> so weird. Who are these and people? <laughs> yeah, there's there's this one there's this one great monologue that he had that Lincoln has about that, and he's watching. He can see the people who are there to shoot him in the back upside down in a dented like electrical, electrical box, like a sil- like a, a metallic electrical box on the wall that has a dent, so it's reflective, but the dent make it makes it reflect upside down like a spoon. Yeah, and he describes all the different people groups that come in, people on vacations, you know, families, all these different demographics of people who come in, and he's just constantly shot every day. Like, that, that, that is just absolutely the opposite. Like, the closest I've ever come to something like this is playing music on the street, right? You're busking, you feel great, people give you money for what you're doing. That is a very empowering feeling as opposed to sitting, getting shot all day. 
Right. And what's even sort of worse about it is that Lincoln seems to be in kind of denial. He really pretends not only that he likes it, and maybe he's not pretending that he likes it. Maybe the lack of control is something he likes. That's an interesting question. But he pretends that this job has more authenticity in it than it has. In fact, when Booth accuses him like, uh, you know, your job is just as much of a hustle as three-card Monty, Lincoln responds, no, no, no. People know the real thing when they see it. This is the real thing. But what is he talking about? Nothing about <laughs> <laughs> this experience that he's creating is real. And then later on in the play, they're talking about guns. Lincoln is like, if you're going to do this job, if you're going to go run a crew, you need a you need a real gun. And Booth says, well, I have a gun. And Lincoln says, no, that's not a real gun. You need to get a real gun. And Booth says, well, what do you know about guns? And Lincoln says, I see guns every day. People pick guns and bring them in this <laughs> tent to shoot me. But they're picking cap guns. Right, that's right. That's not real. These are toys. Or maybe they're real guns that have been transformed into not working anymore. It's not the same as a real gun, but he likes to imagine this different level of authenticity in the job that is actually there. Yeah. I think the, I think that's kind of the interesting thing about him is he's so willfully in, not denial, but willfully accepting of it as a good job. And I think that has a lot to do with what happened to him right before he stopped playing three card money, which is his friend got shot right next to him. Right. Um, so like th- there was this really clear defining moment that separate. What a weird thing though that he goes to a job where he well, is he shot. He gets then. shot too. Yeah. yeah. It, th- I mean, there, obviously, there's a lot of metaphor in all of this, right? Because his name is Lincoln, his brother's name is Booth, and he's a job where John Wilkes Booth shoots Abraham Lincoln. Blah blah blah. But then there's the second level of metaphor too, where you know he he has a monologue about how he thinks that his friends death is sort of his fault. He talks about how he knew it was time to pack up. He could see that things were kind of going odd and he had a weird feeling and he's like, I should just pack up now. But he kept playing and then he watches his friend get shot. So then as sort of, it's never stated in the play, but there's sort of metaphorical level of sort of penance of now going to a job where Mm, you just get shot every day as the job. So let's talk a little bit. We're right. We're right in the middle of guns and foreshadowing and names and stuff like that. Let's talk about a huge foreshadowing element, which is Booth's gun, um, which uh, kind of carries through. We we see it right away at the beginning of the play. Right, right when uh, Lincoln comes in for the first time, he surprises Booth, and he's in this full getup of which, you know the Abraham as the Lincoln opening piece of a play. One character is one African American man is playing three card Monty. Another African American man walks in in white face, dressed as Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> and that's like the first three minutes of the play. What a what a like a trip. Like what? Yeah. A, if you didn't know what you're getting into, <laughs> you might just sit there and go like, "What is this? <laughs> what did I do?" <laughs> <laughs> yep. But right away in that first scene, Booth pulls a gun on him, and it's and it's a player throughout. You want to just kind of maybe hit some of the significance of of that that gun and the foreshadowing involved with it? Sure, yeah. So he pulls the gun and right away is threatening Lincoln with it, but more out of surprise. Like, you, And what's interesting is the script doesn't say that he's surprised by Lincoln's presence. It's specific to the stage directions are he's surprised by the costume. Uh, right. And he knows that he's doing it, but Booth has told him before that he needs to take the costume off at work. He doesn't like him coming home in it. And that's part of what we've been talking about, how Booth feels like Lincoln's job is inauthentic. It's not the real him. So he threatens him with the gun there. Then later on, and Another scene that we've talked a little bit about, Lincoln is telling him that he's going to have to get a different gun than the one that he has. The one that he has is more like a toy than a real gun. I think it is a real gun. Well, we know it is, but it uh, it, it's not 
I don't know, it's not big enough or it's not threatening enough. It, he's got to right. get like a real manly gun, I guess. I don't, I don't <laughs> if it's not clear, I don't really know a ton about guns. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have some very specific words for you on what sure. type of gun Booth needs to get. But <laughs> he needs to get a better gun for some reason. Uh, and then there's, of course, the end of the play. Well, well, a couple times throughout the play, he threatens what he's going to do to people with the gun. Like at one point, uh, and we probably need to talk, we, sh- we need to talk maybe a little bit about this at some point too, but Booth is also trying to change his name throughout the play. Yeah. He doesn't want to be John Wilkes Booth anymore as his name, although they don't call him John Wilkes. So he doesn't want to be Booth anymore. He wants to be called Three Card. Right. Which is a stupid name, but that's what he decides <laughs> to go with. It's it's and and Lincoln makes fun of it as being a stupid name too. So I'm not I'm not pulling that out of my out of the air or anything. Like <laughs> Lincoln and I agree. That's a right. foolish name. But that's what he goes with. Three card. Um because he's now he's gonna be the biggest three card Monty player in the world. Three card. And so then and he threatens he says, anybody who doesn't call me three card gets a bullet. And right. then he also, at one point, he gets stood up by his date, and he sort of runs off in anger as if he's going to go show her the business for you know leaving him stand up. And he, he and and then of course there's the end of the play, which involves the gun and a lot of violence as well. So you know the the first interaction that the two brothers have on stage, the most significant parts are the first interaction the two brothers have on stage is Booth is pointing a gun at Lincoln, um, saying. You know, take that costume off, take that costume off. Then the end of the play, Lincoln has put the costume back on to take a picture so they have it for the scrapbook. And Booth has got the gun on him again. So there's that. We see a lot in in theater, especially in really good plays, this sort of echoing of how things come and go. But beginnings of the play are often sort of similar patterns to the ends of plays. There's a echoing, a mirroring. Yeah. And let's kind of let's let's talk about the other character that is a part of, you know, a, a pretty important part of of the last scene of the play, and that is the character who is never on stage but is often mentioned, and that is Grace. Uh, Grace is Booth's current, uh, maybe girlfriend, uh, certainly past girlfriend. That yeah, uh, you wonder how much of what he says is true. I, yeah, like, absolutely. We, we've had a couple of plays now where we've like talked about characters who are liars and you just and you say the sort of same things about characters who are liars it's like how much of what you're telling me is actually true like at one point booth comes home from what is supposedly a date with grace and say, and talks about just all this amazing sex that they had and he's just bragging about it and bragging about it and then he goes to bed and starts looking at girly magazines and lincoln basically says man you were lying you didn't yeah. have any sex tonight at all you're coming home to look at girly magazines because you're all frustrated because you didn't get to have sex. And so you start to wonder, well, if he's lying about that, was he even seeing Grace at all? Like, is Grace, I mean, obviously she's a real person because Lincoln has met her, but is she even interested in him at all? Do they have any interactions over the course of the play? I don't (laughs) know. Yeah. I I think that is interesting that we should take a little bit of time with that because what he says in the last scene is is pretty indicative of this or could mean a lot whether or not he's lying because they kind of go through the play and there's there's a couple different scenes he goes over and he comes back from having supposedly fantastic sex with Grace and then there's another scene where she's supposed to come over to a date at his place at eight o'clock and he sets up the place nice it's it, it's the act break 
in the play. So you come back and the place is noticeably cleaner. They said that, you know, and he's this, a, and he's boosted a couple of suits too. Right. Uh, yep. the, the, so he's wearing a really nice suit a and nice he's boosted suit. some fine dining stuff, et cetera. There's champagne around on, on ice that, that has clearly been on the ice for a long time. There's a nice tablecloth over the cardboard <laughs> and milk crate table. Uh, that he normally is doing the three card Monty on, and uh, so he's got this really nice date set up. But it is it is clear what comes out in the scene is that it's two a.m. and she was supposed to be there at eight p.m. And he's 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 starting to kind of slowly freak out about it with uh, Lincoln arriving. So there's that scene, and then there's the next the next scene. Come he comes in and he's saying that he went over to Grace's house and. And she she said that she was watching TV at the time because he got the day wrong. It was supposed to be Thursday, and so he kind of goes through these scenes of like he's he's either he's either not doing a good job at this relationship or lying to Lincoln about it. So do you think? Well, and the first time he talks about Grace, he says she's in love with me again. She doesn't know it, but she's in love with me. And then later on in the same scene, he says, "Well, if I start making money, then Grace will be interested in me." And Lincoln right away goes, "I thought she was in love with you." And he goes, "She is. She is. <laughs> She'll figure it out." Yep. <laughs> yeah. So then. So to return to your question. Yeah. So then, what do you what do you think is the case with the last scene? I think we got to talk about the last. We got to kind of spoil this play because it has so much to do with the title of the play. Yeah. Am I going in a direction that you no, feel comfortable with? No, I think with? that you're exactly right. There, I yeah. think that there's not a ton of uh, extraneous plot to surprise anybody with in this play. Uh, ultimately, so so Booth has gone away. I, I, as I recall, the, the sort of scene order is that uh, Booth has set the, the, the second to last scene is this date night that supposedly was supposed to happen and didn't happen. Booth storms away at the end of that night. The next day is what we see. Lincoln comes home from work again, um, or, or no, well, no, he from, comes. Or, he he's lost his job at that point. Uh, yeah. He's he's actually been laid off. So he comes home like he does on payday and says "ta-da," which is a routine they have when he's gotten paid. And he comes home with this big wad of money, but Booth isn't there, and he lets out that he has uh, been. Um, He's been out playing three-card Monty. Lincoln has gone back to it. He lost his job at the arcade, and so he went back to playing three-card Monty. But he doesn't think Booth is there. So he talks to himself and does this whole big spiel about all the money he made. He's talking about all the respect he has now that he did it. And Booth is actually, unbeknownst to him, in the room and hears it all. And remember, Booth has been trying to get Lincoln to play three-card Monty the whole game. And now Lincoln just goes out and does it without him. So as the audience, there's some dramatic irony and some tension because we know that's going to piss Booth off. But then what Booth does is kind of sneak over to the door and pretend to be just walking in. And what Booth says is, well, I went over to Grace's house and she just had the wrong night. There was just a miscommunication. She was watching TV and she asked me to marry her. She wants to settle down and have kids and, and blah, blah, blah. So, so what I'm going to need you to do, Lincoln, is move out. And right. he says, okay, well, I'll move out. No problem. Because remember, he's got all this money now. And mm-hmm. Booth says, well, what, is, what do you mean? Is that a problem? Well, didn't you just lose your job? He's trying to sneak. He's trying to play a little Sherlock Holmes with him and get him to admit this that he's been playing three-guard money. And Lincoln just lies. Yeah, I got a new job. I'm a security guard now. I got some money. So it's no big deal. Eventually, it does come out that he's been playing three-card Monty again. And and what what happens from there? Yeah, so he it comes out that he's been playing three-card Monty and, and Booth gets him to sit down and play with him. 
pretty much. He he or he it's kind of a weird moment of he's kicking him out and uh he Lincoln heads towards the door and Booth tells him pretty much lets him know that he knows he made a lot of money. And so Lincoln kind of turns around and he's like, "Okay, I'm yeah, I was going to tell of course I was going to tell you. I wouldn't cut you out of the loop." I Actually, just, he says, "I didn't tell you cuz I thought you already knew." <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and apparently he I mean, it's a it's a loose lie, but he just got done talking about how everyone on the block knew that he had started again. And so so he <laughs> tells this kind of really awkward lie about it, but Booth gets him to sit down and play with him and teach him the stuff that he hasn't been teaching him. And in this scene, we get the dynamic of Lincoln starts... The, Lincoln has done this once before, right? The scene the scene previously, he played one right. round yeah, with scene, Booth. And, he, and he, he, he's trying to teach Booth how to play, but Booth keeps winning. So Lincoln will deal the cards and switch them around and do try to trick Booth, and Booth will always know which is the right card. So Lincoln is sort of the... the the I don't stage know, the, directions. The story, the stage directions are that Lincoln is losing this game and he, he's just not as good as he used to be. He's rusty. Um, or maybe Booth is just a lot better than anybody thought. Yep. And so they, they play a couple of hands of this and Booth wins and Booth wins again until eventually <laughs> Lincoln, Booth suggests that they play for money because... Booth knows that Lincoln has five hundred dollars, and he wants he he thinks that he wants to get a hold of it. And Lincoln Lincoln uh, brings it out, but then he so, I forget which one of them says it, but it is brought up that this isn't really real stakes. Even maybe maybe my touch is slipping because there's no real stakes. So what has been said before is that when the parents left, they each gave each of the boys at different times. The mother gave Booth five hundred dollars in a nylon sock, and. The father gave Lincoln five hundred dollars in the form of uh, fifty tens or, or, or ten fifties. Yeah, um, as they were both leaving separately, each of the parents gave each of the one child five hundred dollars. Yeah, and, and and they call Lincoln it their inheritance. Ha- it's Booth's inheritance, and Lincoln has blown his a long time ago. Lincoln's got a problem with money. We haven't talked about that much this conversation, but he really can't hold on to money. And in fact, every time he brings a paycheck home, he brings it and hands it right to Booth, and Booth budgets it out, presumably right. because they know that Lincoln will blow it otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And and that and whatever doubts we may have as to what Booth might do with that money when he budgets it out, he nonetheless in this scene goes and grabs the nylon sock that his mother gave him $500 with and puts it on the table. And now there's stakes and this game Lincoln beats him. Um, and, and he beats him in such a way that it looks like he's been running this the whole time, right? Like he starts laughing and he keeps saying, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just laughing in general because this game, there's just so much about this game that you don't understand. And, and, uh, and it it definitely feels like he has played Booth in some way. I don't know that he necessarily. Well, this I, has been I mean, a long game. I think game. that there's two options. One option, and and they both have some interesting. I don't think either one of them is too easy, or either one of them lacks any depth. Because the one option is that Lincoln has been playing Booth this entire time. He's been letting Booth win, letting Booth win, and now finally with a thousand bucks on the line, Lincoln decides he's going to win. And he laughs, and he you know he really hasn't taught Booth all of his tricks yet. There's a lot to the game he doesn't understand. The other option is that Lincoln just got really stinking lucky. 
He hmm. just he man it just it was it was luck of the draw. It happened that that time that he won, and he goes on to brag about how good he is at the game, about how Booth doesn't understand. But the truth is that it just it, it was luck that that time he managed to win the money and Booth doesn't. And both of them have some interesting implications for then what happens in the scene, because one implication for then the violence that ensues because of this loss, this fact that Booth lost is is a result of Lincoln trying to trick Booth. It's Lincoln's fault that he, he, you know, he played over on Booth. He pushes Booth down a lot. He treats him like this kid. And he's finally got, well, he's got another trick, another wisdom that he didn't share with Booth that causes Booth to react violently. The other option is that Booth really, the game is not, the way that they play it, there's not a lot of trickery to the game. A lot of it's just luck and watching the cards. And that time Booth lost. And, it, and if Lincoln hadn't blown that out of proportion, the fact that he was lucky that one time, he might still be alive. <laughs> because what winds up happening is Booth says, he pulls out the gun and he says that he had been over at uh, Grace's and I think he said, I, I popped Grace or something like that. Um, well, yeah, and that's after saying this whole series that what of what is clearly a lie that he went over and she hadn't, she had just gotten the wrong night and that they're engaged now. Clearly, all that was a lie because after Lincoln has won all the money and paraded around what might be luck, what might be a true trick, maybe he really is good at that tricky side of three card. Who knows? Whatever happens. Booth finally, he's mad at him. He's going to open this nylon sock to show all this money off that he won, which is Booth's inheritance from his missing mother. And Booth's response is to tell Lincoln, I shot Grace. Yep. She's, and, and what's interesting is that for, like, like all things about Grace, the first part of it is a lie. Because right. he's, first he says, I shot Grace, but don't worry. She's still alive. I left her alive. And then Lincoln says, she's dead, isn't she? And yeah, says, like a yep, statement, yep, she's dead. She's dead. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and Boots is just like, yeah, you're right. She's dead. So why he felt the need to lie in that moment, who knows? But the, but things are crazy now. He shot Grace. Yep. And it just slowly, it, it kind of devolves from there. I think that, that that scene, I imagine, is just kind of this gravity settles over the room. Because actually what has happened is he has not cut the sock open yet. He is sitting there. He's been trying to untie the knot, and the whole time he's trying to untie this this nylon sock, he's laughing and guffawing, and he's kind of he's treating this five hundred dollars, and maybe that's a small inheritance for some, but this is a significant inheritance, and he's saved it. Booth has saved it and never touched it. This is like a for relic. Thirty years or twenty yeah. years or however long. Mm-hmm. And he's just treating it really irreverently, and he's, you know, stole uh, certainly whatever whatever way you choose to interpret the game, he has stolen it from from Booth in that moment. And one way or another, he has taken away something that is very important to him, and he's treating it very offhandly. And I think the gravity of the situation uh, comes home when he realized that when Lincoln realizes that Booth killed someone today, and he has the gun out now. And I imagine that's when things start to go south on well, and stage. That's immediate, and right immediately at that point, Lincoln starts to go, here, you can have the money back, man. You right. Have the I money don't want back, the money. No problem. It's no big deal, um, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. You can have it back. Ultimately, 
what Booth says is, no, 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 I want you to open it. And opening it is a big deal because Booth has not opened the sock since his mother gave it to him. And a couple of times, Lincoln has prodded him like, how do you even know there's money in there? Maybe she was just fooling you. You've never even peeked. So Lincoln's like, I'm going to open the sock and see what's in there. And finally, when Booth's got the gun and is threatening him and Lincoln's trying to give it back, Booth says, no, 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 you should open it. Open it. And Lincoln finally agrees and opens it. And that's the moment where Booth picks him up and sticks the gun in his neck and kills him dead. Which just, uh, talking about the title of the play, power dynamics within this play, top dog, underdog, I think it absolutely kind of flows back and forth between these two through the whole play. Because at the end of the play, there is no question who's top dog. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And and what's interesting is that that you know that that end power moment is Lincoln parading around that he's still top dog. Right. I won. You don't understand the game. I'm still the best. I have all these tricks that you'll never learn. You're still this kid who needs to learn how the world works. I'm still top dog. You're still the underdog. And then the gun comes out. And Bruce right. says, "No, you're not." Mhm. And then it's just over. That, like, that's the end of, of the this. play. Yep. I mean, there's like he he. The end of the play is like him sort of Booth sort of screaming in anguish about what he's done. Yeah, a big there's there's a monologue preceding that too, where he kind of talks about his or he 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 says his headspace at the moment, right? Like, can't believe you you think you can steal this from me? You think you take this from me? Um, yeah, and but then but then you're right. The last the last scene that we see is him holding the dead and probably, you know, there's blood on the floor, Lincoln and wailing as the lights fade. Which, which of course, again, returning always to the metaphor, John Wilkes Booth kills Abraham Lincoln. In this play, Brother Booth kills Brother Lincoln. And there's all this, obviously, all this foreshadowing. And, and one thing that I find really interesting is the use of those names, because like we've talked about, Booth is trying to change his name and change his destiny. And the way that he wants to do that is by playing three-card Monty with his brother. He wants to get back out on the streets, and he wants to change his name from Booth to three-card, to change his destiny. And if Lincoln had agreed to go along with that, play three-card with him on the street, teach him the ropes, start this business together, call him three-card, all of this would be different. But because Lincoln refuses to and still lords his supposed knowledge, and I think you and I probably disagree. I think it was luck (laughs) and you think it was a trick, but that's a different question. The supposed (laughs) knowledge of the game that he has over him, uh, if he hadn't done that and and instead chosen to live in the world of three-card with three-card, then Booth wouldn't have shot Lincoln. But because the name stayed the same, because Lincoln rejects that world of three-card, of teaching him, of doing this with him, ultimately it comes back to Booth shoots Lincoln. The destiny returns, the names return. Well, I think we're kind of out of time for this one again. Again, we could talk <laughs> We could talk some more. I think you and I should talk some more about this play because <laughs> we clearly... Uh, and, you know, that's the great thing about this play. We talked about it uh, to begin with. There's lots of room in this play 
both literally there is space in the script with dead deadlines for you to put whatever you want to into the play as a director or an actor, but also an interpretation of what's actually there. There's tons of more facets to to grapple with within this. So we'd love to continue this conversation online with you and probably with each other. And um, <laughs> we're going to do, uh, yeah, so find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're at NoScript Podcast as our username on all of those. And then we have our email, which is NoScriptThePodcast or no script podcast at gmail.com we are currently hosted on uh, uh, on podbean which is where you can find all of our episodes we are in the process ideally of being on spotify as well but we are also on apple podcasts so if you have a moment and you like to leave us a review on apple Podcasts, that would of course help us but the biggest thing it can do to help us out is share this episode share the podcast tell your friends get more listeners involved more people involved in the conversation comment engage with us scripts are awesome we love them we hope that you love them We'd love to continue to talk about scripts. Yes, indeed. So until next week when we're coming at you with another script, I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script the Podcast. See you next time.